You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. Holy oversized ballot, Batman. We're going to be reviewing a Harley Quinn movie on the podcast today. You know, Kevin, I hate to break it to you. All the gang's back, except for Mr. J. I apologize, Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, Well, at least he has an Oscar to keep him company now. On today's episode, we're reviewing Kathy Yan's Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. We're also going to be reviewing a Netflix film that made its debut at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this month. It's the Alison Brie starring indie film, Horse Girl. It's all happening at the same bat time and the same believing channel here on episode 236 of Seeing and Believing. I want to kill you because without the Joker around, I can. For all your noise and bluster, you're just a a silly little girl with no one around to protect her. Whoa, wait! What? Don't kill me. Right. No, 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 seriously. Romy, Romy. Come on, there's gonna be something something we can figure out. Hey! Wait, wait, you lost something, right? You lost something, I heard you say it. A diamond. I can help you find it. Seriously. I know the East End better than anybody. You want this diamond back? I'm your gal. That is a clip from the new film Birds of Prey. We're going to hop into our review here in just a moment. Kevin, before we go any further, though, we just had an Academy Award presentation that <laughs> just changed history for good. I say changed history. At least it made history. And that was Parasite winning Best Picture, which made me very excited. How did you feel when you heard that Parasite won Best Picture? Where were you when you heard that Parasite won? (laughs) Well, I I was at home doing nothing much of consequence, Wade. Um, In fact, my we weren't watching the Oscar telecast, uh, and my wife was actually the one to inform me of it. She was on the internet and saw the the headline, so that's how I heard about it, and I was pleasantly surprised. It was not something that I was expecting, but it was at least my favorite film of the Best Picture nominees. So, you know, the 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 nominations got so much wrong in my opinion that it was nice to see that at least the winner was the correct pick. Yeah, it it was really great. And listeners know that my number two film of the year was The Irishman. But I think think I'm happier now that it's all said and done that Parasite took it home. It was just a fun night. And if you have a chance, Kevin, look up Bong Joon-ho's speech when he won the Best Director Award. And he gives this... Great shout out to Martin Scorsese. It's really wonderful. And then the crowd gives him a standing ovation. And then he he shares some nice words with Quentin Tarantino. So it was it was a very fun night. And a lot of the awards were kind of spread out. It was nice to see Ford v. Ferrari taking uh, a couple of awards. Uh, of awards. And um, yeah, I don't know. It. I just, I, I enjoyed the ceremony. It was, it felt like a good ceremony this year. Yeah, uh, you know, I... 
I heard that Bong Joon-ho's acceptance speech was uh, just wonderful, and he he genuinely, it seems like a, a nicer guy couldn't have, have won the award, so go him. I'm really excited to see him get a lot more attention from general audiences, mainstream audiences. I foresee a big bump maybe for Snowpiercer in particular, which was sort of his bid at big blockbuster success here uh, with with English language filmmaking. So looking forward to that. I was a little bit disappointed, or I guess I should say a lot disappointed that Greta Gerwig's fantastic adaptation of Little Women came up dry on uh, its big awards nominations, particularly adapted screenplay, because I know you like (laughs) Jojo Rabbit better than I do, Wade, but even so... I cannot believe Jojo Rabbit beat out oh. Little Women for Best Adapted Screenplay. Just can't believe it. No, no, and it, sh- it shouldn't have won. Uh, I would have really liked to see uh, Little Women uh, take that home. I Yeah, that was, that was uh, distressing, I, I guess is the best way to put it. Uh, yeah, th- and, and there, were some, there were some categories, and just there weren't very many good nominees in particular categories, so that was a little rough. Uh, but overall, I, I think things turned out fairly decent if you kind of take it in perspective, right? It, the Oscars are the Oscars. And even though uh, even though Parasite won this year, uh, something crazy is probably going to win next year that we all hate. Uh, it's just it's the way it happens. But it is nice uh, for this to take place and, and to actually see history and, and to, you know, be a part of it in some way and it's fun too because a a lot of people have been telling me that they are watching parasite or they plan to watch parasite because of the big victory and so that's really that's really cool so people who don't people i know who don't watch foreign language films are watching parasite and that's yeah that's just very exciting yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see it. If the the same body can award the big award to both Green Book and Parasite, I think it's safe to say that who knows what the future holds, but hopefully <laughs> the next ceremony is going to have more pleasant surprises than unpleasant ones. Yeah, I mean, I I was thinking about next year's ceremony and i was and i was thinking about 2020 films and just off the top of my head we we get another wes anderson movie we get a christopher nolan movie that i'm very excited about we get west side story from steven spielberg We're, we're gonna get some pretty fascinating movies and um at the very least i'm excited for 2020 the beginning of this this decade and we're gonna look back at the previous decade that's gonna be a lot of fun but um looking forward listeners we're gonna jump in this episode is going to begin as so many in the past have begun, and that's with a review of a comic book film. Maybe this one will make it to the Oscars next year. Who knows? Here's the movie's official synopsis. Directed by Kathy Yan, Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn is a twisted tale told by Harley herself, as only Harley can tell it. When Gotham's most nefariously narcissistic villain, Roman Sionis, puts a target on a young girl named Cass, the city is turned upside down looking for her. Harley, Huntress, Black Canary, and Renee Montoya's path collides, and the unlikely foursome have no choice but to team up 
to take Roman down. Margot Robbie returns as Harley Quinn, alongside Mary Elizabeth Winstead as Huntress, Journey Smollett-Bell as Black Canary, Rosie Perez as Renee Montoya, and Ewan McGregor as Roman. Kevin, while 2016's Suicide Squad bombed with the critics, Birds of Prey looks to turn around this anti-hero franchise with a little bit of zany fun. And I think that's where I want to start the discussion in this segment. Fun. Kevin, in a normally drab season for theatrical releases, do you feel like Birds of Prey sparks at least a little bit of life into the box office? I would say on balance, yes. This is a movie that is uh, wears its uh, status as a superhero film set in a larger superhero universe. It wears that... Uh, that mantle a lot more lightly than the 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 pond what has become the ponderous Marvel Cinematic Universe. I feel like it doesn't take itself too seriously. There are glancing references to this larger continuity, but it doesn't really go go hard on that stuff. And for the most part, I I really appreciated that. It felt in a lot of ways to me like a like it was hearkening back to at least in part the 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 Tim Burton Joel Schumacher uh, idea <laughs> okay, of <yeah. laughs> of the Batman universe which isn't to say that it it's uh analogous to them quality wise i i although i probably would say i like it better than the burton batman but i okay. maybe i'm not the oh, i'm wow. not the person to to really uh I'm not sorry. Let me let me back up. I'm not really the the biggest fan of the Burton Batman to begin with, but I do think that there's a freshness to what Kathy Yan is doing here with the material that that I found welcome. Uh, I guess maybe if I had to sum it up, it feels a lot like a Tim Burton comic book movie refracted through the lens of Edgar Wright. And if any of our listeners know how much I love Edgar Wright, that's that's pretty high praise, even though this film maybe doesn't reach those heights. Yeah, it's stylistic, good and bad. You know, I think this film is, is pretty fun. I will say this, when we're kind of in the middle of the third act, I, I think I was kind of done with the movie. Uh, the film starts out strong and then I it just seems like it barely crosses the finish line at the end uh, you think about some of these fight scenes you know how much how how many times can we see these characters kind of punch and kick and it still be entertaining but I think the framing of this film is a whole lot of fun and that's Harley Quinn has been dumped by the Joker and now she has to go off on her own and she does something that signifies her independence. And because of that, she's no longer protected by her status as Joker's girlfriend and everybody's coming after her. And that's a whole lot of zany fun. And in the film, Harley, I think two times, we see her watching Looney Tunes. And I think this movie has, you know, kind of a R-rated Looney Tune vibe to the film. And that works uh, pretty well, especially when the movie leans into that 
and does that over just being one of your you know typical superhero action movies which i think it does that more so at the end which weakens the the picture overall you i couldn't put it better than that when when you say that this film is at its best when it's positing uh Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn as sort of the Bugs Bunny of this film's universe when it goes in that direction rather than into the punchy kicky superhero stuff that's definitely where it's strongest and I think the the action sequences here are maybe the film's weakest for me not because they're poorly shot or anything but just because it doesn't really feel like that's what we all came to see and it doesn't really seem like that's where the film's heart is. Um, I, I, I think a lot of the... Sorry, let me back up. <clears throat> I'm thinking particularly of this trick that, that Yan goes to again and again during the action scenes where, you know, Harley Quinn will, will kick somebody or hit him with a, with a mallet or, uh, you know, do this acrobatic flip move and, and drag him to the ground and it does that speed ramping thing that i think Zack snyder really popularized where sort of <laughs> yeah. the action slows down we get kind of this tableau and then it speeds back up again to the the bone crunching conclusion of whatever stunt is happening and it's it's fine when used sparingly i think yan returns to that well a little too often for me to find the action sequences fully engaging but when she kind of colors outside the lines a little bit, I think that's where this film really shines. I'm thinking particularly of an early chase sequence where Harley is uh, running away from Rosie Perez's uh, tenacious police detective, Montoya. They're, they're you know, running through this, this crowded street and Harley keeps running into uh, individuals during this chase whom she has wronged in some way and they're all out for her blood as well so she's kind of bobbing and weaving trying to get her at them and every now and whenever she runs into a new one of these uh, people the the screen freezes and we get kind of this this cheeky little text about uh, what she did to this particular person to make them so mad at her and there's this these on-screen graphics and Yan has a lot of fun with that, including my favorite touch, which is where we get kind of this close-up and the usual uh, subtitles on screen about what the this particular person's grievance is. And then we cut back to the regular action and we see this character from Harley's perspective, you know, from a distance. But those titles are still on the screen. They're just smaller in perspective. It feels, again, a little bit like an Edgar Wright touch, very inventive and uh, visually witty in a way that I feel like we don't get a lot, especially in the superhero genre. Yeah, and, and that whole sequence, which is really fantastic, where she's running away from all these individuals, she's trying to eat an egg sandwich, and there's this <laughs> manic quality to Robbie's performance. It, it kind of feels like that old... Uh, uh, cartoon Looney Tune where the wolf is like howling at uh, a female wolf or something just kind of salivating and she's just obsessed with this sandwich and it's kind of fun there's another sequence where uh, there's a lot of glitter involved I guess that's all I'll say and that sequence goes on for too long but th there's a zany quality to it that I do appreciate and then when the movie kind of digs into that or leans into that it's fun there's uh there's one moment and it's during this really long fight sequence that's 
just I thought it was kind of boring. And this man has his arms around Harley Quinn, and she has this baseball bat, and she she puts the baseball bat behind the man's arms and turns it like it's a, a safe or like it's a, a, a handle and just kind of like unkinks his arms. And I laughed out loud. I thought that was funny because of this, that manic quality to it. And perhaps that's why, you know, at the end, it's, it seems like that just slowly kind of disappears over time. And I wouldn't even say that I got tired of this film uh, in the sense that I'm seeing the same thing over and over again. I think the quality of this movie kind of diminishes towards that back half and you just kind of get to the end and you're like, well, I kind of just want to see these characters interact and, and talk and be weird and be silly. And there's this one scene kind of in the middle of the film where a character betrays another character and he's just kind of like packing up and he's like, yeah, I'm sorry. It's just about the money. And it's a really random scene and it's kind of strange how it's staged, but it's like, okay, that, that is, that's kind of funny and it's different and it's unusual. And, uh, yeah, I, I like the color palette here. It's very bright. It's, uh, it does remind me of some of the Burton films, not that the Burton films were all that bright and colorful from the Batman franchise uh, that he started with Keaton, uh, but it it's very it is very stylistic. It's very it sets a mood. Now his sets kind of this darker tone, uh, but this definitely sets a mood. If it's not dark, um, it is very bright and silly, and that works with Harley Quinn's character. Yeah, I think uh, Josh Larson in his review of this film compared it to. Likened it to as if it were constructed out of rotten cotton candy, and I think that's a really that's a really fitting way to describe this movie because it does have this this candy colored aesthetic that also manages to work in this this grit and this grime as befitting the fact that Harley Quinn is uh, an anti hero if we can even call her that she's definitely got her her unsavory side but. Uh, Kathy Ann doesn't kind of go grim dark in the way that uh, Joker did or something like Suicide Squad did where it was just it's not very interesting to look at. She feels free to uh, stylize this film in a way that makes it genuinely interesting to look at even after the the plotting kind of drags the film down and the big action climax while it's energetic I don't think really is as interesting as maybe the first half of the film as you observed Yen still kind of has that same visual sense that again after I I, I feel like the because superhero movies tend to be such you know monumental financial investments there's a tendency for them to play it safe a little bit, to have kind of this homogeneous visual aesthetic to them that, you know, is fairly standard blockbuster filmmaking. And Birds of Prey doesn't really do that, and I appreciate it for that. I also really appreciate how it doesn't feel the need to set up its villain, its big bad, as some sort of world-defining threat, or even city-defining threat. Ewan McGregor's uh, Roman, Sionis, who we find out at the beginning of the film has this alter-ego black mask, who should be familiar to anyone who's familiar with the, you know, the Batman rogues gallery. 
Ewan McGregor plays him as essentially kind of this spoiled rich boy, and that's a lot of fun to watch him still have genuine menace and be a bad guy, but it's the sort of villainy that is not rooted so much in the Thanos school of thought where every threat has to be bigger and and more serious and almost on an existential level, a threat to the protagonist. In this film, he's just kind of an annoyance, but he's an annoyance with a lot of money and a sense of entitlement that is personally threatening and yet also extremely petty. I think that's a really interesting note for uh, Yan and her collaborators to work into this film, and I think Ewan McGregor plays it just pitch perfect. If I had to pick a favorite performance in this movie, in fact, it might be him. He's just so unctuous and silly, but also evil, but evil in a way that feels very fitting to me. He feels like the sort of, like if Donald Trump Jr. were a comic book character, it feels like he would be <laughs> what Ewan McGregor is channeling in this movie. <laughs> yeah, he he almost feels more at home uh, showing off his stuff than he does going out and, and being a mob boss. There's a scene with Ewan McGregor where he does show his uh, collections, collections in his house to Black Canary, and it's really funny. Just his demeanor and his dialogue, and part of part of that is is also goes into my disappointment at, towards the end of the film, where I feel like he he almost kind of disappears uh, in the back half, and he's still there, and they're still fighting him, but he's not what he once was. He, bec- he becomes more of this cliche uh, villain in in the movie. I think the editing and I think the camera work for the most part, does a nice job of, of really digging deep into the uh, the nature of our narrator, and that's Harley Quinn. So there's a lot of fast cuts and a lot of uh, movements, and uh, the movie doesn't try to be overly serious. I will say this, though. For a film that's... It, it's not trying to be super serious. It is supposed to have fun. There is a lot of violence, and in particular, there are some scenes where children die, uh, very gruesome deaths, which just feel, it feels kind of odd to me because it's really only, it's only there to say, hey, these characters are really bad. You know how bad they are? Oh, they kill kids. And it felt a little strange. And then towards the end of the film, you have uh, Winstead's character, uh, the Huntress, she tells Cass, uh, she says, you shouldn't have to see all this violence because she had to see it as a child. And so there's definitely this sense that these women are out to protect someone who needs to be protected. And the film, I don't know, it just it it just seems all kind of odd to me. And perhaps maybe that's because there was like a, a five-year-old uh, child watching the movie in the theater uh, whenever I saw it. So I, I don't know if that's a part of it, but it just felt strange watching children die cru- gruesome deaths in a movie like this. I mean, if if I had a bone to pick with this movie, it does seem like it doesn't... It, it has a really strong handle on the central conflict, you know, Harley versus Roman Sionis and kind of the various ways that they interact with this criminal underbelly 
world that they're both a part of. I don't know that the film has as strong of a grasp on what it's doing with some of these ancillary ingredients. The the uh, birds of prey, I guess. The, the other uh, female heroes and anti-heroes who are alternately fighting with Harley Quinn, fighting alongside her, fighting for her. They're individually interesting. I'm not sure that the, the film in the end really kind of knows how to build a coherent, a, a thematically coherent story around their various interpersonal dynamics. And I, I guess that's exemplified kind of at the end when we get what I guess would be the teasing of the sequel where uh, Harley Quinn is kind of deciding, kind of summing up where what the status quo is after the central conflict is over. The the direction that she goes and the direction that these other uh, heroes go um, suggests to me that the film doesn't really, is not as interested in one of those paths as it is in the other. Namely, this film is interested in Harley Quinn as its protagonist, and that's as it should be. It does feel as if the other stuff that's happening in this movie, the the sisterhood among these heroes and the choices they make and the way that they genuinely see themselves as people fighting for what's right, as opposed to Harley Quinn, who's just sort of doing whatever. It it It's fun enough. I'm not sure that it's really fully coherent on a thematic level, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I was looking forward to seeing Winstead's character as the Huntress, and I, I don't really think she's given much to work with. And they do kind of come together at the last moment, but there's not, I, I don't think there's much chemistry between all these uh, characters within the, the Birds of Prey. Uh, they just kind of fight together. Now, I like the overall concept, and it starts with the breakup between Harley and the Joker, and it kind of trickles down to all of these characters that they have been kind of pushed aside. Other men have taken credit for what they have done. They've been traumatized by these individuals, and that brings them together, and that's in some ways why they choose to fight together. I don't think the movie kind of highlights that to make any sort of uh, powerful point or emotional moment. And and maybe maybe the film doesn't need that, but there really isn't an emotional core to this film. So there's really no moment where we're like, oh wow, yeah, they you know they sacrifice or they did this, and and this is yeah, that's just a powerful scene. Uh, but. I mean, if if this is a Harley Quinn movie, it, it's supposed to be fun. Maybe we don't need that. I I don't know, but it does feel at least uh, a little bit thematically underdeveloped. Yeah, I, I, and underdeveloped, I think, is is the right. It is probably closer to what I'm trying to articulate than incoherent. I I think that it's there's definitely some interesting stuff here, and mainly the way that Yan frames this conflict as essentially. Uh, entitled men taking what they want and thinking that it not only that it's their right, but also you know there's nobody to stop them. There's a line of dialogue when uh, Ewan McGregor's Black Mask is 
has discovered, oh, that Harley Quinn and the Joker have broken up. And the one of the first things that occurs to him, he says, if she doesn't belong to him, she belongs to me. And that, I think, is a crystallization of what Yan is is doing with Harley Quinn and the these uh, female, sorry. <clears throat> and that, in a nutshell, is, I think, what Yan is doing with Harley Quinn and the heroes or and anti-heroes that surround her isn't so much that they are are fighting for an ideal as much as they're fighting back against the sort of entitlement that's represented by this spoiled rich supervillain and his desire to just have whatever he wants and get angry and hurt people when he doesn't get what he wants. I think that's a really interesting idea. I just I'm not sure that the film flushes that out in a fully satisfying way with its ending. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add this one thing, too, is <laughs> whenever I, I watched Suicide Squad, uh, it felt like every other, uh, I, I wouldn't even say every other scene, multiple times throughout every scene, there, there was some sort of like classic rock song kind of coming back and forth. The film is not as bad in that arena, but there's a lot of music just kind of cut in for this fight scene and that fight scene. And it, it just, it feels like too much in that sense. That's a small little, uh, bone I have to pick, but it's it's definitely there. Listeners, that is our review of Birds of Prey. If you like the film, we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you didn't like the film, we would also love to hear your thoughts. Make sure to tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about a smaller film. It's named Horse Girl here in just a moment. song in the interlude is Breaks Upon by Scurvy Ricketts. Kevin, we really appreciate everyone who's taken an opportunity to become a Patreon supporter for Seeing and Believing. They get some perks, a lot of great stuff. We have a number of different donation levels, and one of them is the What Can You Buy for $5 level. And Kevin, I had a, I had a question for you. I've been thinking this week of what someone could buy for five bucks, but I want to hear your thoughts first. And if you don't mind, I'd like to add another product to that product line. Uh, well, uh, the thing that you can buy for $5, if that is the product line to which you are referring, is a full body sticker. So if you do a good job, you usually get a gold sticker, but 
you know, when you do a really good job, it seems like going above and beyond demands something a little bit more uh, opulent. So a full body sticker that you can just wrap yourself in this giant gold star and be adhesive, all have adhesive all over your body. That seems like that's the real way to show the world that you did something special. <laughs> so just be mummified by a giant gold star sticker. <laughs> and if you do something special every day, you get it. Okay, so <laughs> I I was like, I think I know what you could buy for five bucks. This is topical humor as well. So for five dollars, you can get a small M&M doll with a beard and when you hit it, it plays his performance of Lose Yourself from the 2020 Academy Awards ceremony. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, did, Five bucks. <laughs> would, 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 this, would this doll like have fully articulated limbs, like elbows, knees, you know, arms, or, or is he just posed? In it's, a certain pose. This is five bucks, right? You know, if it were 10, 15, we could get the limbs and all that. This is just oh, pose. No, no articulated <laughs> limbs. Okay. I I got to say, when Eminem came out and performed that song in the year 2020, the year of our Lord 2020, I was very surprised, but I probably got into it more than I should have. Um, but it was definitely a special moment in the Oscar ceremony. How, how, you know, like I said, I didn't actually watch the telecast. I have to ask, how's how's old Eminem doing doing these days? How's he looking? Well, he has the beard. Uh, that's why the, the, the little doll thing has the beard. Uh, I think he's doing okay. Um, I didn't really know how he was doing in 2003 when the song was released <laughs> for the 8 Miles soundtrack. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think he's doing okay. Yeah, okay. Well, that's that. That's good to hear. I guess I wouldn't have a reference point for that either, but glad to see that he is performing on the Oscars, hale and healthy, doing his thing. <laughs> yeah, um, that was a yeah, that was a big surprise. Uh, but that's five bucks. And listeners, you can also support us at Seeing and Believing. Five bucks a month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. You help us keep the podcast going yeah you and if you want to spend your your five dollars maybe not on seeing and believing but on the larger christ and pop culture family you can also do that be by becoming a christ and pop culture member you uh gain access to our members only forum you also help support writing on the site and wade recently we've gotten a couple really great pieces going up on the site we got a piece about the Good Place finale that uh, just aired uh, on NBC. I think it was, was it last week? I haven't seen it yet. It, was, it was sometime in the past. I know that. <laughs> sometime in the past. Uh, KB Hoyle, uh, as usual, is on the case with a uh, new entry in her column. This one is titled The Good Place Finale, Death is Bad and Other Problems in the Afterlife. We also have a piece from Caitlin Chess about the Michael B. Jordan starring film Just Mercy, which is titled Just Mercy Calls Us to Be the Family of God. And Just Mercy Wade, I have to confess, is one of those movies I just haven't had time to get around to yet in the in the big award season crunch just other things took precedence, so I'm looking forward to checking that out based on Caitlin's words about it on, on the site here. 
Yeah, I haven't seen it either, and I think it's out of theater, so it'll be it'll be one of those that I catch up uh, with later. But I am I am going to see it. I am looking forward to the film, and it looks like it, it's definitely pertinent to religion and and cinema uh, because of the nature of the story. So yeah, that's uh, that's something I'm definitely going to check out here. Hopefully, hopefully when it releases on you know home video, I say home video VHS uh, in the next couple of uh, months. Yeah, hopefully that ought to be soon. And listeners, whether or not you support us financially, you support us with your attention and with your words. If you have seen Just Mercy and want to let us know about it, you can always email or tweet us. We really love hearing from you. Don't go anywhere. We're about to jump into our second review here after the break. Yeah, I've been having like really weird dreams. Really? About what? Um, I don't know. Like... I've been seeing the same people over and over again, and like these strange places I've never been before. And I don't know how to describe it. It just feels really weird, like really scary. That's horrible. And like, I've been having like weird things with time. Weird things with time? Like finding myself places and I don't know how I got there. What does that mean exactly? Like last night, I was gone for like 25 minutes and when I looked at the clock, it showed that only two minutes had passed. So like I did some research online and people talk about um, carbon monoxide poisoning, but I just don't think it's that. And then they also talk about um, alien abductions. Do you believe in that? Mm, no, I, not really. We're here in the second half of our show, Wade, dusting off the the glitter that might have gotten everywhere after our review of, of Birds of Prey. And hopefully that won't be too big of a production. I don't know if I've told you about my feelings about glitter, but I'm glad to be moving on from <laughs> that part of it at any rate. Yeah, and you know what? We never mentioned this. This is our, our animal-themed uh, episode. We got birds and we got horses, Kevin. Um, <laughs> what, what more could you want? Well, we, we've, we've got it all sewn up. We also have an interesting thematic tie-in in that, you know, Harley Quinn is obviously uh, very mentally disturbed as portrayed in the film. And the film that we're talking about here in the second segment is about another character who, who has some psychological issues, although, of course, Horse Girl treats that subject with uh, a, little, a little bit more uh, seriousness and more of a dramatic sensibility. Horse Girl also features a protagonist struggling to come to terms with major life changes. In this case, that protagonist is played by Alison Brie, who also wrote the film. She plays Sarah, a socially awkward woman with a fondness for arts and crafts, horses, and the paranormal. With trauma in her past, a very modern brand of social isolation in her present, and uncertainty in her future, Sarah finds herself dealing with some strange new dreams and unsettling phenomena causing her to question the reality she sees around herself. Wade, Brie, like I mentioned earlier, wrote the screenplay for this film, and in interviews she's talked about how she drew a lot of inspiration from her own family history and some of the, the mental health issues that is farther up her family tree. Obviously, Horse Girl takes this in and fictionalizes it in, to some degree and causes us to wonder exactly how much of what we're seeing along with the protagonist is real. But to start us off, I am really curious to get your take 
on Alison Brie's performance in this film, as she's the st- the star of it, her character is in pretty much every single scene. What do you think of how this film portrays mental illness, and how do you think Brie's performance informs that portrayal? Yeah, I, I'll start with Brie's performance. I think she does really good. She plays this socially awkward introvert who is just connected to reality enough to where she feels very real. So this is not someone that we can't relate to. This is someone that that we can relate to. And uh, I think Brie really kind of lets us in on who this person could be and the disjointed nature of this individual. And there are a couple of line readings that Brie makes that I was like, just, just kind of, I don't know, wowed because I haven't seen her in a role like this. One in particular, she's talking to a counselor and she's explaining how she feels, uh, what she's struggling with, and a number of conspiracy theories, which are just kind of out there. And then she says this. She says, I, you know, I, I know it sounds crazy. And there's this line that she, that she walks with that piece of dialogue where it's, I understand how I relate to the outside world, but I can't. I can't get past that. And I think she does a fine job. I think this movie kind of sets itself up well when it talks about mental illness as this uh, connection to past trauma, this this element of genealogy, as well as this desire to search for a cohesive narrative for the world. Now, I, I found myself a little bit disappointed towards the end of the movie and how this problem works itself out. But I think for the most part, I, I was pretty involved in the story. And I haven't, I haven't seen this movie getting a ton of positive reviews. So I was a little, I was a little surprised at how much I, I, I connected to it. Yeah, this is a film that I went back and forth on while I was watching it, because it does seem as if the director, Jeff Baina, doesn't quite know how to present this material in in a in a unified fashion, I guess. There it, the film begins kind of as the kind in, in the register that I guess a lot of us are probably really familiar with. There's kind of this quirky indie dramedy that uh, we're familiar with uh, from films that are both directed by and produced by the Duplass brothers. They produced this film as well, and you can kind of see this indie mumblecore style uh, manifested in the film. Just in kind of there's there's a little bit of quirkiness around the edges. Uh, Sarah lives with with her roommate who has this boyfriend who kind of has this side gig as a as a rapper and he talks about how he's got this concept album about a baker's dozen but doesn't actually know that a baker's dozen has 13 in it instead of 12 and that's kind of humorous and there are places where the dialogue is is funny there's this in-universe paranormal show that's kind of a a spoof of the X-Files. You know, there, there are these two investigators and they get into all of these outlandish paranormal happenings and the way it's presented is obviously meant to garner laughs. So when the film then kind of really 
turns into this very serious portrayal of how Alison Bree's character kind of is beginning to have a, a loosening grasp on what's real and what's just in her head. It, it feels like those two things are at odds with each other. And when the film makes a turn in its final act into something that's a lot more ambiguous and surreal, it's it's very easy, at least for me, to feel really unmoored by this film and trying to parse what it's saying about mental illness and its central character. And I'm just not sure it's all the way there, even though Alison Brie really does give a great performance here. Yeah, and I think I think there, in some senses, like you're you're spot on. And I think the film is a little bit uneven. I I think I'm a little more prone to give it some grace just because it feels like it's trying to do something different instead of just making this straightforward film about mental illness instead try to uh, try to work in a couple of metaphors now those get mixed up at times and i think to the film i think the film needs to show us probably a little bit more of sarah the main character's humanity and her value as a human being so we don't just care about her because we feel bad for her because we do feel bad for her and 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 we we are sad about what has happened in her life and what is happening and i i think you know that's fine to an extent we need to see more of her bring some dignity to her and i think the, the movie does need a little bit more of of that I did find some of the science fiction elements, the science fiction elements, as well as her search for her family tree to make sense in the overall story. And that's she's she's searching for a narrative that will explain her narrative. She's searching for something, a story that will make sense in her life. And because of that, she clings to science fiction or she clings to a a horse or she goes about finding her backstory now when the movie kind of makes this almost wild turn it sheds some of those interesting ideas but it does make sense because when we feel lost we want to cling to something that's there and that's stable that we can point to and her struggle to do that I think is the struggle that many people face, whether they're struggling with mental illness or not, just trying to find a sense of balance in the world. And you mentioned it well in the introduction uh, when you talked about it, it's sort of a modern isolation that she's experiencing here. There are people around her, but she is, she, you know, she goes to the Zumba class. She's, she's a part of things, but she does feel alone. And, and so I, I think I'm a little more prone to, to kind of let the movie pass on some of these faults just because I, I think some of those ideas are there and, and they can be meaningful in their own way. Yeah, well, I think I think that a lot of those elements that, that you're talking about are there in, in Bree's performance. I do really find her convincing as this woman who really has, is freighted with a lot of 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 past difficulties and the way those revelations are sort of parceled out to us over the course of the film, I do think are well handled for the most part. My problem is more that, that Baina in, in some of his, his directing choices 
and especially in in the music that that he incorporates from Josiah Steinbrick and Jeremy Zuckerman, it's kind of this. Yeah, it's it's almost like this that theremin music you hear from you know old sci-fi movies, the kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's not uh, that's not in this film, but the soundtrack does feel like it's really trying to at at, at some points make you feel a little bit creeped out by by Sarah, and I think those choices and some Bane's choices, like this the scene where uh Sarah's uh roommate's boyfriend comes out at in the middle of the night to to get a drink from the kitchen sink and she's standing like just facing the wall uh it, you know it's almost like something out of the Blair Witch project in the way that Baina uh directs it it does seem almost like a horror movie moment and i think that's the wrong note for him to be striking for this film when in other moments he's evoking very seriously the past, the the trauma in Sarah's past, and the grief that she feels over the the fate of some of the people who, uh, she loves, who have experienced tragedy in various ways. Those moments are played so straight and so heartbreakingly well with, from Brie that it feels like these other directorial choices are really inexplicable and, and and like I said, just made me feel increasingly disconnected from whatever Bana thinks he's saying with it. Yeah, and he's kind of pulling over some of these science fiction elements uh, from the the idea of the television show into this. And, and no, I, I I agree. I think I think that's definitely a, a problem here as well. I I think. It's hard to talk about this film without talking about the ending, but there are some fascinating choices visually with this character, and and she really feels like her her mind is disjointed from her body. This is this is a film about our bodies and not being in control of our bodies, and that is, I think. A, an image, a good image of mental illness and trying to struggle with who we are and where we are, even the physical spaces around us. And so there are some cues where he cuts from a shower head to another shower head uh, or a shower head and then later we see a traumatic event with that same shower head. And this idea that these events are running over and they're crossing each other, those from the past and those from the future. And this trauma, as well as the trauma that affected this person, this mother, this grandmother, is affecting her today. I think some of that is uh, very effective. Now, you mentioned this too. We get near the end of the film, and it's very, very surreal and strange. And it it does work with this disjointed nature, but I think it probably almost goes... Uh, uh, too far, where Brie is almost this this ninja kind of s- working through different scenes and passing through different moments, and it it definitely feels like at some points in the movie, especially towards the end, its surrealness and its strangeness and its twists for the sake of those things, and so it's it's all it's more about the plot at that point. Than, than the person and just kind of coming together at the end and, and even saying to yourself, you know, what does this all mean? I, 
I, I don't know if there's necessarily an answer, and, and maybe there's not supposed to be, but there does come a point when things are a little too ambiguous for their own good, and I think the film kind of borders that towards the end of the movie. Well, part of the problem, I think, is that Baina is, is almost trying to go full Lynch with with yeah. those those moments in the end. It feels like, like dream logic. It feels like the same sort of subconscious you know uh it feels like this sort of land of the subconscious that lynch plums so well but with lynch you know he kind of he builds his entire film with that kind of mood and atmosphere in mind in this film for for it to begin with sort of this quirky you know laughing at the boyfriend's rap concept album and then to veer suddenly into this dream logic landscape where it's not entirely clear what's real and what's not or even uh what the resolution of her of her journey uh where where that ends up going with all of that happening it it ends up frustrating more than feeling like it arrives at a at a conclusion and i i think that that's largely down to Baina having this material and really trying to push hard on what he sees in it, but not doing a particularly good job of bringing the audience along for the ride. You know, when when people talk about giving to causes and and giving to charity, uh, they'll often say, "Hey, you know, if if you, if you make someone feel guilty, they they might accept the cause for a short period of time." But when those guilty feelings go away, uh, they'll usually forget about that issue. I think one of the problems here with this movie is, as I mentioned, this film makes us feel a little bit – it makes us feel bad for this character. And that's one of our main attachments to her. We just feel bad for her rather than um, valuing her as a human being. And, and like I mentioned, Brie really tries to do that. In some moments, she does click it. And then it gets very plotty at the end. And so as I'm thinking back – to this film, I'm finding myself kind of keep going back to the plot and uh, keep figuring out the mystery and having to almost force myself to think about some of these deeper issues, which I think are there and which I do appreciate. Um, But I I think that's part of the problem with the conclusion and some of the elements in the movie is that we do get away from this central character. And I think this film is worthwhile and I think it says something and I I do appreciate it in a way, and and I appreciate it more than I thought I would. Um, but I think the approach does come away from the screenplay at the end, and really does something that hurts the overall value of the movie. Uh, and I wouldn't even say it's like all that entertaining either. So it's it's almost a lose lose. I mean, yeah, it's it really is a shame because there are there there's just such. Uh, a wonderful humanity in Bree's central performance, but also in in the surrounding cast. Uh, Allison Wilmore, in her Sundance review, mentioned that this film really does a great job of portraying the kind of of isolation where somebody isn't a total recluse. They're not completely cut off from the world around them, um, and they're not completely alienated from from everyone. So this isn't sort of a Joaquin Phoenix's Joker situation where, you know, everybody is just awful to him all the time and he just has no relief. This film really portrays a kind of isolation where Sarah does kind of 
kind of have a support network. You know, she has a, a roommate who's pretty nice to her. She goes out on a date with a guy who seems genuinely interested in her. She's got a uh, stepfather who does seem to care for her, but none of them are really close enough to feel like they can be the one to say, you know what, we need to check you into a hospital. We need to get you some help. We need to do something about what's going on in your life. And because of that that slight little barrier, it's not very thick, but it's thick enough to allow Sarah to continue uh, on her spiral. And that's something that is deeply understandable like the, the none of these people are villains but it's also very sad and i think that that's that's really sensitively written by brie and portrayed by the actors and directed by by Baina himself so it's just a shame that those elements couldn't cohere into something that felt a little bit more uh unified yeah no that's a good way to put it Listeners, Horse Girl is currently playing on Netflix. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the film. As always, tweet us at cbeliefpod, at cbeliefpod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Kevin, we've reached the part of the episode where we recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. It's how we close out the show. What would you like to recommend to our listeners this week? Well, I've got a movie that actually ties into our review of Harley Quinn in multiple ways. It is also about a charismatic psychopath. It stars Christian Bale, who himself played Batman at one point, Harley Quinn's nemesis. I'm thinking of the 2000 film written and directed by Mary Heron, American Psycho. This is uh, based on the Brett Easton Ellis novel of the same title, and it follows a character named Patrick Bateman, who is a serial killer and utter psychopath, who also happens to be, because of his position as a successful finance guy, finance bro who is on top of the world in 1980s America, he's also able to get away with the most horrible crimes imaginable. I like this film for a lot of reasons. I think that it takes what is pretty objectionable subject matter. I haven't read the entire novel uh, by Ellis, but I've read excerpts and find it to not to mince words, pretty repulsive. I think Mary Heron finds a a really interesting way to spin the material um, by making it through Patrick Bateman's eyes, but not really just completely uh, presenting him without critique in the way that Ellis's novel does, I guess, or the way that Ellis's novel seems to do. It's um, kind of a sneakily feminist film. There's a scene where Bateman chases a woman down a hallway with a chainsaw, but the way he's framed, he's holding the chainsaw in a very particular place that makes it very clear what Mary Heron thinks of him and his masculinity. I think it's a it's a very clever film. It's definitely not for everyone. Extremely uh, extreme content, I, shall we say? But I think like a lot of the best horror films, it has a lot on its mind and it communicates it in a way that that really gets under your skin. So if you can stomach it, American Psycho is a great film to check out. You know, you, you've mentioned this before and I've, I've just haven't had um, 
haven't had the desire to go watch it, but maybe I should do it at some point. I, I feel like it kind of floats around the streaming services. So it'll be on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something. So it feels like it's always out there. Uh, just haven't had a chance to, to watch it. But I like the connection. You connect it in a lot of ways to uh, Birds of Prey. So hats off to that. Yeah, I, ha- I, I've, I have talked about on the podcast before, but just seemed a good enough tie-in that I couldn't pass it up. And it also just seems like Mary Heron didn't really, hasn't really, her career hasn't really gone anywhere, which I think is real shame because I think that American Psycho is just, her directing on is just really great. So wanted to highlight that again. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you did. So I am going to recommend a film from last year. We did not have a chance to review this on the podcast and I I knew I was going to see it didn't have a chance to see it in theaters but I knew I was going to see it eventually and actually surprised at how much I did like it and that is Terminator Dark Fate so I do like the first two even the first three Terminator movies and the two after that not good but Terminator Dark Fate is I think probably the third best Terminator film. Now, take that as you may. For some people, they you know, well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a good film, but I, I think it's it's pretty solid. And this film, directed by Tim Miller, kind of gives us what we want. So, the Terminator movies, at least all of them, except for Terminator Salvation, they all have the same premise, and that's a uh, you know, robot goes back in time to kill someone who's important and someone gets sent back in time to protect that person. And I think what you want is uh, you want some good action sequences, uh, you want compelling characters, and then you want some new wrinkles to kind of add to that story. And I think that Dark Fate does that for the most part. Now, it overstays its welcome when it comes to action sequences. There's there are too many fights, but it provides this new wrinkle on the timeline, bringing Linda Hamilton back and keeping in line what happened in uh, T2, but kind of changing directions. And I appreciate that. And then Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's back, and they add a new wrinkle with him and his story. Now, add that to the fact that Mackenzie Davis plays a human slash partial cyborg that comes back in time. She's really great in the film to protect Linda Hamilton and a new character. I won't spoil this character, but a new character. And I think it, it all works out uh, pretty well. It's a it's a good popcorn movie and uh, glad I watched it. Kind of sad I didn't watch it in theaters, uh, but uh, certainly glad that it's, uh, it's more good than bad. So that's Terminator uh, Dark Fate. Yeah, I don't know. I I've I kind of grew impatient with the Terminator franchise and its various time traveling shenanigans a while ago, and it seems like the the franchise has kind of been lost since then. But I, you're not the first person to have said that Dark Fate was was surprisingly good and in some ways a return to form. So I don't know. Maybe I should eat my words on that. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you might like it, and it's fascinating too. With this, this film does kind of what uh halloween did and that's essentially say hey the first two movies halloween was like the first one exists none of the others exist Uh, this one says the first two exist none of the others exist let's just start from there and it provides a clean slate and removes some of these other obstacles that were created with other films and 
yeah, I, I, I thought it was a pretty good, uh, likable characters, interesting storyline. Like I said, too much fighting, but there are some good fight sequences, which, uh, with that, you know, that's that's always a bonus. Yeah, well, fair enough. I'll may, maybe I'll get around to it one of these days. Yeah, one of these days on a on a rainy Sunday afternoon probably that's the you know that's what this kind of movie is for listeners that is the end of our episode we want to remind you to rate and review us on itunes we always really appreciate that thank you for listening to this episode it's brought to you by our patreon supporters and christandpopculture.com our producer is jonathan clausen we say this every week but he really does help us to search for the sacred on screen he does such a fantastic job on the podcast. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz used under Creative Commons License 3.0.